What you're hearing is the music from 1917's The Poor Little Ritz Girl, starring Mary Pickford. Because last week, as part of my digging up the bones of my predecessors so that I may mock and scorn them series, I talked about Douglas Fairbanks. And if you're talking about Douglas Fairbanks, you should probably also talk about the person with whom he is linked forever throughout history, Mary Pickford, the other half of the possibly first celebrity portmanteau, Pickfair. Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, probably also the first couple to be called Hollywood royalty, the first couple to have their hands in cement in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater, as it was called back then. It is now, of course, the Fritos Pepsi Fleet Enema Chinese Theater. Though Pickford's star has since been relocated to 6280 Hollywood Boulevard. Hey, that's right between the Halal Strip Club and the Baby Vape Shop. I know right where that is. It's kind of east a little bit. So let's talk about Mary Pickford, who's one of those names, you know, it's like, I know it. It's like, yeah, that's a person. That's a Jeopardy question. But I didn't know anything about her, and more importantly, about her movies. Because that's what's interesting to me, is how do the movies that were made back then resemble the movies and TV that we watch today? What are the themes? What part of the brain are they tweaking that still gets tweaked today? So I always assumed that Mary Pickford, silent film era, 1920s, movie star was probably like a femme fatale. No, turns out not really. She kind of got famous for playing like little kids. She was not tall. She was shorter than five feet. She had her hair in these little ringlets and she would often play kids, teenagers sometimes, or uh, maybe like a pixie-ish young adult. Some of her most famous films are Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, Pollyanna, Poor Little Rich Girl, you may recognize this as stuff that got remade by Shirley Temple about 15 years later. So she did other stuff, but those were her best-known films. And so I was asking myself, all right, what's the equivalent of those films today? It turned out to be kind of a difficult question to answer, though I, I, I have a theory. But my, my first thought was, oh, it's like the Olsen twins. Kind of a cutesiest child actor saying adorable lines, oh, isn't that precious kind of thing. But I thought, no... That's not quite right, because, like, the Olsen twins stuff in the 80s, 90s, like, that was for kids. That was kids' stuff. They were on the Disney Channel. Those were kids' movies. Mary Pickford was very big with adults, so that's not quite right. So the next thing I thought is, oh, Pixar then, because Pixar is kind of, like, wholesome family entertainment. The kids like it. Adults watch it, too, except for Cars 2, which is a movie that I will blow my brains out if I have to watch that one more time. And Mary Pickford's movies were they're very wholesome. She was, you know, very wholesome middle America. You know, their country was very, very churchy back then. And her movies stayed within those boundaries. So I thought, okay, it's like Pixar. But then I thought, nah, it's not quite that either. Because number one, the Pixar movies vary a lot in theme. They don't have like one theme they stick to. And then also, the movies in the 20s, they were all like wholesome oh, isn't that swell kind of entertainment because it had to be, because if it wasn't, then it would be deemed the work of the devil and it would never make it into theaters. They weren't making Blue Velvet in the 20s, so that was kind of the only kind of movie there was. I need to get more specific about why did people like these Mary Pickford movies. And there's an obvious connection between Mary Pickford's stuff and Shirley Temple's stuff, which came 15, 20 years later. And that stuff I do know about because when I was a kid, I would go to my grandparents' house and my grandma would rent free movies from the public library, <laughs> and those were often Shirley Temple movies. So I have seen Shirley Temple's Heidi, Shirley Temple's Poor Little Rich Girl, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, and those movies do all have the same theme, and that theme is, 
Charming little imp melts some crotchety old bastard's heart. And that's really the center of those stories. Some super, super grizzled old fuck gets his heart melted by this darling child. So what's the equivalent of that these days? I think it's the Bad Santa movies. Yes, this is my position. I think it's the Bad Santa movies. The Bad Santa and then also that entire genre, which is one of the only surviving comedy genres these days, of Bad Blank. Because, of course, there was Bad Santa. And then we got, like, Bad Teacher, Bad Judge, Bad Grandpa, Bad Notary Public. I don't even fucking remember. There was just this whole series of movies, and there are still TV shows that are like this, where it's just bad some type of authority figure, because that's how this town works. When something works one time, Hollywood just keeps making it over and over and over until it stops working, and then at that point, they make it ten more times. But I think those movies and TV shows are, in a weird way, kind of, similar to Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Because in all of those, in the third act, the person's heart melts, and you see that they do have redeemable qualities after all. I think the big difference is just that with Pollyanna and Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, the emphasis is more on the sweetness, whereas with, like, Bad Santa, you at least get 110 minutes of Billy Bob Thornton swearing at a little kid, which is funny before they get to the heart-melting part. And actually, if you want to kind of broaden out to other types of comedies or comedy-adjacent movies, how many movies end with, in the third act, the, like, works-too-much-dad melts and realizes, like, oh, I need to soften, like, Mary Poppins is this, Liar Liar with Jim Carrey is this. Dads in movies are constantly learning the lesson, hey, I gotta mellow out. And it seems that Mary Pickford's best-known films were very much in this genre of, hey, you gotta mellow out, you old bastard. And one more thing about this type of movie, interestingly, we don't project ourselves into the little kid, we don't imagine ourselves to be the pixiest child that everyone likes. We imagine ourselves to be the old crotchety bastard. Think about it. When you're watching these movies, you are experiencing them from the perspective of the old crotchety bastard because we all are old crotchety bastards. I think it is impossible to get old without being some level of a crotchety bastard and hence you experience this kid and you do probably end up thinking, yeah, I should mellow out a bit. Though in the modern version, only after you get an hour and a half of jokes at the annoying child's expense. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast, the podcast that delivers all the best content from my Substack, imightbewrong.substack.com, without all the bothersome reading. If you enjoy the podcast, please do share it on MySpace, Grinder, Farmers Only, whatever social network you use. Today's episode is called How Will We Escape from Trump Hell? God damn Damn it, we are talking about this guy again. It's such a, you can't not talk about him. I mean, when the ex-president is possibly going to face criminal charges, when he possibly mishandled sensitive intelligence, like, that's news. You have to talk about it. But I don't want to talk about this guy. I'm so sick of him. I don't like what he does, what he does to all of us. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, he is bad for your brain. But he's still news, so you got to talk about him. I mean, this section of the podcast is normally me saying, I wanted to write this one because I didn't want to write this one. He made me. So 
That's how we got here. The title is, How Will We Escape from Trump Hell? Subheading, The How Makes a Big Difference. So, I don't often ask for sympathy for late-night comedy writers, but please pity the poor, cursed souls who wrote for late-night comedy shows between 2016 and 2020, because Donald Trump kind of made our lives hell. For starters, Trump totally threw off our rhythm. Late-night shows, they film in the early evening. Trump would always do 12 crazy things between dinner and when your show aired around bedtime that would make your piece instantly passe. Trump also made comedy writers totally unnecessary. I was reminded of this... (laughs) When I saw the pictures that went around this week of (laughs) shredded documents that Trump tried and failed to flush down the toilet. Look, you don't need a comedy writer to bring out the funny in that. What zinger could I possibly add that would enhance the actual thing? Trump's presidency was four years of bad jokes, repetitive pieces, and situations that could not be exaggerated for comedic effect. We all lived through Trump hell, but comedy writers were condemned to the circle where Satan whips you with barbed wire while you write infinite jokes about Kofifi. And of course, I'm being kind of glib here. Trump's presidency, all joking aside, was some serious shit. Now, I am not going to go on a diatribe about how I agree with Dick Cheney, believe it or not, that Trump is a unique threat to democracy and how we must uphold the rule of law, blah, 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 wankity-wank. You have heard that before. Suffice it to say, I am very glad that Trump does not hold office, and I hope that he never does again. Of course, Trump isn't gone, is he? Wouldn't be recording this episode if he was gone. The raid on Mar-a-Lago reminded us that there are still chapters in this story, and, oh, God, as much as I hate to say it, they matter. And, oh, kill me now, God, we do need to talk about them. Because Trump will eventually exit the political stage. It will happen at one point, one way or another. But how he exits the political stage will determine how much we are haunted by his probably metaphorical ghost. So here's the big question. Would it be good or bad if Trump faced criminal charges? To me, that's a question a lot like, should we move to single-payer health care, or was Game of Thrones any good in that I can use it to start an argument with any person on the planet? Because I can argue either side of those questions. I will take either side as long as it's the opposite side of whoever I'm talking to, because both arguments seem really strong to me, and also because I'm a confrontational asshole. Let's start with the why it might be bad if Trump faces criminal charges argument. One source of my discomfort here is that using the justice system to take out your political opponents, that is a hallmark of authoritarianism. The playbook, if you're a dictator is real simple. When a possible opponent emerges, you simply sentence that opponent to 20 years in prison for fishing without a license, 
Then you portray yourself as a defender of the rule of law, and then you just trounce an array of nutcases and weirdos in your next election because the only credible opponents are behind bars. We should all be extremely wary of criminal charges being used as a political weapon. This is, of course, (laughs) you probably noticed, uh, one of the really worrying things about Trump. Trump leaned on Ukrainian President Zelensky, who's had uh, a bit of a surge in popularity, it would be fair to say. But before that, Trump leaned on him to try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Trump also publicly threatened Hillary Clinton with jail time. We kind of forget that. He did it in a debate. And of course, lock her up chants were a staple of Trump rallies in 2016. Of course, the fact that Trump (laughs) is now potentially in trouble for mishandling classified materials after he treated Hillary's kind of middling to pissant email impropriety as the crime of the century that is surely sending irony shockwaves through the universe that will be detectable on distant planets. But Trump's eagerness to treat such minor infractions as a very serious crime, as long as it's his political opponents that do it, that does demonstrate the potential for abuse of executive power. So this does not seem like an abstract concern to me. It seems like a quite real and relevant concern, even though I am at once worried about Trump using this power and worried about that power being used against Trump, strangely. Because principle matters. Anyway, if criminal charges end Trump's political career, Republicans are going to portray it as a partisan hit job. They will do this even if the FBI finds several murdered Girl Scout troops in the Mar-a-Lago freezer. Already, Republicans are portraying Trump as a righteous victim of political persecution. The first Nelson Mandela comparisons might be only days away. The justice system obviously should not bend to the whims of partisan messaging, but the fact remains that if the Trump era ends with a criminal conviction, well, then it never really ends. A much better way to drive a stake through the heart of Trump's political career is for him to lose at the ballot box. Of course, he already did lose at the ballot box. Remember that? It happened, but his most credulous followers just kind of pretend that he didn't. Although, if he loses again, then by 2024, Trump could be a 78-year-old two-time loser. And for Republicans to nominate him again in 2028 under those circumstances, would be like Disney committing to five John Carter sequels now. Personally, I would really love to see Trump lose the Republican primary because maybe nothing would improve our nation's health more than a sane Republican Party. Oh my God, I dream about that sometimes. And look, I know if Trump were to lose the GOP primary, that is not going to instantly purge the GOP of authoritarian tendencies. I am also unlikely, by the way, to develop puppy love for Ron DeSantis or anyone else the GOP might nominate, but 
Republicans are only going to inch back towards sanity when the total nutcase faction of their voter base becomes small enough that it can be ignored. And defeating Trump would really help with that. So part of me strongly prefers that voters, not the Justice Department, end Trump's career. And yet, I can't really bring myself to go so far as to hope that the Justice Department stands down. Which brings me to the argument as to why it might be good if Trump faces criminal charges. So first, for the purposes of the next part of this episode, let's assume that Trump has committed a crime. This strikes me as a less than bonkers assumption. I am not a detective, and our justice system is based, thankfully, on evidence, not on hunches from comedian bloggers, but Trump's behavior makes him about as superficially guilty of wrongdoing as a guy tiptoeing out of a bank with a black mask holding a big bag with a dollar sign on it. Trump is almost certainly, it's like a slam dunk, guilty of tax evasion. And I can think of, oh, about 60 to 80 ways that he might be guilty of fraud. There is also reason to believe that he might be involved in things like money laundering or sanctions violations. Oh yeah, there was also that time that he pretty obviously obstructed justice. And there was also the time that he bragged about committing sexual assault. He did also, I remember this, he tried to overthrow a democratic election. That definitely happened. And there are probably, oh, another 10 to 20 plain as day felonies that I am just forgetting. My point is, I will make this next argument assuming that Trump has committed some serious crime. And I do not think that operating under that assumption is a total waste of time. So waving away... Trump's criminal liabilities in the hope that voters will put him out to pasture, as I sometimes am tempted to do, that would place Trump above the rule of law. And declaring a chief executive untouchable, much like prosecuting your political opponents, that is also a hallmark of authoritarianism. It is, to cite some of the most obvious examples, what enabled Hosni Mubarak's looting and occasional governance regime in Egypt and also Castro's egregious smoking indoors spree in Cuba. The president enjoys special considerations like executive privilege, the pardon power, and 20% off all tire rotations at participating Jiffy Lubes. That is in Article 2. But aside from specific and well-considered carve-outs, standards of justice do need to apply universally. So we've got two beliefs operating here. Number one is that we should be wary of the Justice Department investigating the president's rivals. And number two is that no one should be above the law. I think these principles don't really conflict so much as they define the parameters in which the Department of Justice should operate. The narrow, healthy, functioning democracy road that the Justice Department needs to travel is lined with authoritarian pitfalls on either side. Now, the good news is that there is evidence that the Justice Department understands this. In 
The New York Times, James Comey biographer Garrett Graff was quoted as saying, this was presumably the highest burden of proof that the Justice Department has ever required for a search warrant, end quote. The FBI director is a Trump appointee. That lessens the feeling that this is just Democrats trying to nail a Republican. The White House apparently learned of the raid on Twitter. Now, that would normally be humiliating, but actually it is completely appropriate in this situation. Now, things are still developing, and the amount that we don't know could fill the Grand Canyon, but I do not presently see any evidence that the Justice Department is running amok. That's the good news. The bad news is that I do find it easy (laughs) to imagine the Department of Justice showing terrible judgment. And that is largely because James Comey's decision to break protocol and announce a new investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server 11 days before the 2016 election, that remains one of the most brain-meltingly terrible decisions of my lifetime. I have spent about as much time on this blog complaining about that decision as I have decrying the trite pretentiousness of George Clooney's The Midnight Sky. Also, a Justice Department that acts as the president's personal goon force was clearly one of Trump's ambitions. It's obviously something he wanted. And the DOJ under William Barr was definitely pliable, if not totally subservient. And all this is not ancient history. This was two iPhones ago. So we need to, I think, remain vigilant against a Department of Justice that shows college student on spring break levels of terrible judgment. Now, if charges are brought, one hopes that they would be for very serious crimes and that the Justice Department is prepared to meet an extremely high burden of proof. And this next section, I should point out, was published last Thursday. A lot has happened between last Thursday and now, but I'm just going to read it the way I published it because there's some stuff in it, some good for Trump, some bad for Trump, that uh, looks kind of prescient in light of recent events. But anyway, what I said was, I have to believe that the FBI is pursuing something beyond mishandling of classified documents. I spent much of 2016 frustrated that people struggled to put Hillary's, quite frankly, lame breach of protocols into perspective. So I am not going to become a classification fetishist overnight. I am not really capable of doing that because I used to work in the government and I know that overclassification is a major problem. So I am totally aware that there are classified documents. And then there are (laughs) classified documents. Now, the nature of the offense matters big time. If Trump is using nuclear codes as a napkin in Mar-a-Lago's public dining room, then yeah, that's a problem. Once again, I wrote that about a week ago. I didn't know anything. Anyway, an investigation into an ex-president that is anything less than ironclad seems destined to melt down. So I hope that the DOJ is really picking its spots. Let me try to close this out with an analogy. Every Legend of Zelda game has the same plot. 
Ganon, the ultimate evil, was imprisoned long ago, but he somehow escapes. And our hero, Link, must go on a quest to recapture him, which begs the obvious question, why doesn't Link just kill that fucker? Really, they have been making these games since the 80s. Ganon is a 29-time offender at this point. I'm honestly, I'm not really mad at Ganon. I'm mad at Link. Because look, Ganon's gonna Ganon, all right? But Link has had 29 chances to splatter this fucker's brains on the floor. So when Ganon kidnaps Zelda, by the way, I'm also mad at Zelda. You gotta be harder to kidnap, princess. When that happens, Link is the one to blame. Do better, Link. That's my point. And what I'm worried about with Trump is that anything that is less than a rock-solid prosecution is going to turn Trump into Gannon. Electoral defeat kills Trump's political future, and an airtight conviction of a serious crime does the same thing. But an unsuccessful prosecution, or a ticky-tacky conviction, that extends our time in Trump hell. I think that the Justice Department understands all this. But if I happen to be wrong, then we all might be condemned to Trump hell for a very long time. And that's the episode. And of course, we recently learned that mishandling of classified materials may be the main event here. That may be primarily what the FBI was after. And it may be the case that Trump was mishandling some not, you know, okay, technically that's classified documents, but some actually very seriously, like, obviously, obviously that is classified documents. I don't know. If it is the latter, it does seem incredibly likely that we are going to get dragged into nuance hell once again, as has been the case so many times during this guy's tenure that, you know, there will have to be a distinction about, okay, well... Not all classification levels are the same. You see, you have classified, and then you have secret, and then there's top secret. Kill me now. I'll tell you one thing I know. That dog is not going to hunt with your average Republican voter. So if there are any Democrats out there thinking, well, once we explain the difference between secret and top secret, don't think that. This is just going to get boiled down to, oh, it's like Hillary's the same thing Hillary did. This fantasy that there will be a landslide of public opinion against Trump, that is never going to happen. If it was going to happen, and I used to think it might. I used to think, oh, it's like Watergate. There comes a tipping point. No, that was the 70s. I don't think there's any tipping point where everyone agrees, holy shit, that was bad. Republicans will only turn against Trump when he becomes an obvious political liability, and incredibly, we have not yet hit that point. Ugh, I really am hoping they do find a lot of dead Girl Scouts in that Mar-a-Lago freezer. That people would understand. People understand murder. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please give us a rating if you did enjoy it on... Mm, Friendster, Ask Jeeves, Hamster Dance. I don't know what website you're on. But please give us a positive rating, and I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.